All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we get into God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord's direction on our study. Our Father, we're so grateful that you have revealed to us the things that we can learn about our Lord Jesus Christ, the details about these last few days before he was crucified, especially as we're studying the very night when he was taken in his betrayal and arrest. Father, we pray that as we study this, we will come to a much greater appreciation for who our Lord is, his graciousness and kindness, even to his enemies. And also, Father, we pray that we might learn something about how we should be responding to those who are antagonistic and hostile to us. Now, Father, we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking and focus as we study your word together. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 26. We will be beginning in verse 47. The focus in this section is on the betrayer of Jesus, Judas, and his betrayal. The word betrayal brings up a number of ideas in our mind. It speaks of disloyalty. It speaks of treason. It is the act of betraying someone to whom we are allegedly devoted. It is the idea of betraying our nation, our country, a king, a ruler, someone in authority, someone sovereign. When we think about traitors, traitors in history, there may be different ones that come to your mind. But if you are an American, probably the traitor that comes to your mind is Benedict Arnold, who was a general in the uh, Continental Army in the American War for Independence. He was a key uh, general at the key battle, the battle that was a turning point in the American War for Independence at Saratoga. And then later, because he was upset that he didn't get enough recognition and respect for, for that victory, he decided to go over to the British. And so he uh, was uh, commanding, had responsibilities at a fort at West Point, Uh, long before there was a military academy there. And he was, um, uh, for a price, he was going to turn it over to the uh, British. It was discovered, and he was found out. For those familiar with ancient history, we also have the story of Brutus, who was the nephew of Julius Caesar. He was very close to Caesar, and he got involved in a conspiracy against against Caesar. And despite his close friendship, he betrayed Caesar and joined a conspiracy to assassinate him. He is made famous by that line in Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, where Caesar sees him coming to stab him and says, et tu, Brute. And even so, he fell. During World War II, one of the more famous traitors at that time was a Norwegian bureaucrat and politician by the name of Vidkun Quisling. He founded a national Samling fascist party in Norway, and after the Nazis conquered Norway, he was set up as the governor in a puppet government that the Nazis 
uh, established. His name became synonymous with anyone who was a traitor and a collaborator with the enemy. A lot of people have heard somebody referred to as a quisling. They don't know anything about where that term came from. <clears throat> and if you're familiar with British history, one name stands out, and that's Guy Fox. Next Sunday is November 5th, and in uh, the British influence countries, they will celebrate Guy Fox Day. Guy Fox was a young, idealistic Englishman who, uh, during the time of the Protestant Reformation in the late 1500s, converted back to uh, Roman Catholicism. He uh, left England to serve with ca- the, the Catholic Spanish armies in the um, Reformation and uh, Thirty Days' War, I mean Thirty Years' War in, in the continent. And when he returned to England, he joined a group of conspirators who uh, thought that they would uh, win the day by blowing up the British Parliament building with Parliament uh, sitting uh, sitting there, and so uh, he was uh, dispatched to guard the gunpowder. They brought 36 barrels of gunpowder into the basement of the House of Lords, and they were going to uh, blow it up, and the plot was discovered, and he was arrested and <clears throat> sentenced to be hanged and drawn and quartered. Rather than going through that torture when they put him up on the scaffold, he jumped and fell to his death, committing suicide rather than going through the uh, going through the torture. There's a British nursery rhyme to commemorate that that goes, Remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder treason and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. And so they celebrate with fireworks and other uh, incendiary and explosive devices every November November 5th. Those are some of the treasons. If you look it up on the Internet, you'll see those and a number of others mentioned. But the worst traitor of all time is Judas Iscariot, for his treason is a traitorous act against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, against the sovereign creator of the universe. Yet it was a treasonous act that, to uh, quote from another event earlier in Scripture with Joseph, that they meant for evil, but God meant it for good. And as is God's capability, he turned that treasonous act into that which would lead to the death of Christ on the cross for our sins. This event is described... This arrest, betrayal and arrest of Jesus is described in Matthew 26, 47 to 56, and in the parallel passages in Mark 14, 43 to 52, Luke 22, 47 to 53, and John 18, 2 through 11. Luke and John especially provide a few insights as to what was going on that are not Listed in Matthew. So we're going to walk our way through this uh, combined account of what took place when Jesus was betrayed and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. As we have studied in the previous section, Jesus had left the upper room. He walked along the Kidron Valley. Somewhere in there, before he got to Gethsemane, he prayed another prayer. He was teaching the disciples that which is recorded in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. And then somewhere in there he stopped and he prayed that which is referred to as his high priestly prayer, praying to the Father. That all takes place. We're not covering through that. That all takes place between the Seder Passover meal and John 13, we'll talk a little bit about tonight, and John 18, which is where uh, these events begin. Then John is silent about what happened in Gethsemane. 
And he goes directly to the betrayal in John 18.2. That's about where we'll begin, so you might uh, keep your place in Matthew 26 and go ahead and turn to John, uh, John 18. We studied how Jesus prayed three times. The disciples could not stay awake. They couldn't watch and pray as Jesus directed them. And then at the end... He uh, addresses them. The passage we're studying begins when verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests, elders of the people. So as we look at this, there are four things that uh, we'll look at, maybe only three today. There's uh, actually six different sections to go through. Uh, We won't get through all of them today. We may or may not get to number four. The arrival of the crowd in Matthew 26, 45 to 47, and then a review of the backdrop, what has happened already in terms of the conspiracy of the Sanhedrin and Judas' determination to betray the Lord. The third thing is the kiss of betrayal described in Matthew 26, 48 to 49 and Mark 14, 44. And then going to John, the demonstration of the authority of the Son of God in John 18, 4 through 7. We may not make it to there this morning. So we look at the arrival of the crowd, what took place. Jesus is with his disciples. It's quiet. It's been a time of prayer. It has been so quiet that the disciples have been falling asleep, like many people in Bible class, which I understand, um, falling asleep and not paying attention, not watching and praying. At the conclusion of that time, Jesus said to them, Behold... The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And his instruction to James and John and Peter is, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The time is now well past midnight on Thursday. It is, according to the Jewish calendar, the 14th of Nisan, the calendar that's followed by the Jews in Judea, would begin at sunset. That's the 14th of Nisan from sunset Thursday night to sunset on Friday night. The disciples would be following the Galilean calendar, so their date changes at midnight. It's been, it was the 14th until midnight, which allowed them to celebrate a Seder on the 14th, and then the 15th is uh, the first day of the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. That date shift just has just occurred at mid- midnight for them. Jesus has prayed to the Father. He has resolved his commitment to go to the cross and to drink the cup. The cup represents what takes place on the cross when he dies spiritually. When he says drink the cup, as I've talked about in the previous weeks, the cup represents judgment. It goes back to the Old Testament where many times the pouring out of God's judgment on Israel or on other people is described as the pouring out of a cup. And so Jesus is talking about the cup of judgment for sin when God the Father imputes to him or credits to him all the sins of the human race. All of your sins, all of my sins, all of the sins of humanity are poured out on Jesus of Nazareth while he hung on the cross, specifically between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when the skies are dark. Then we are told in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what he looked forward to with such uh, sorrow, such intense emotion, is for the perfectly righteous Son of God, who could not look on sin, 
to become sin in the sense of a receiving the judicial penalty and the separation from God the Father. Spiritual death during those three hours what brought about the most incredible, intense, extreme pain that you and I could... We can't imagine it. It goes beyond anything that we could think. It goes beyond the horrors of the physical torture and suffering that he endured between his arrest and being crucified on the cross. As Jesus speaks to Peter, James, and John, he draws their attention to what is happening. In this section, I want to skip a couple of slides here. He says, behold, twice. He says, it's trans- the word in the Greek is edu, which means pay attention, wake up, note. Look at what's happening. The hour is at hand. And then in verse 46, he says, rise, let us be going. And you, the New King James translates it there as see. But it's the same word. He's drawing their attention to this particular event. He wants them to recognize that the betrayal of the Savior of the world is about to take place. The perfectly righteous God-man is going to be uh, taken into the hands of the pagan Romans, as well as the anti-grace, anti-Bible, legalistic religious leaders of Israel. This is one of the most horrific demonstrations in history of the evil of religion. Remember, religion is the devil's tool. The religion is the devil's invention. This comes to play. We'll see something interesting going on in the text with this. It is the devil's lie that we can somehow impress God with who we are or what we do, and that if we are sincere, if we are good, if we do the right things, that God will bless us. Whereas Christianity is about a relationship a relationship with Jesus Christ based on what he did on the cross. God does all the work, and we accept that on the basis of what Christ did on the cross. Biblical Christianity is not about works. It is about faith. James tells us that faith without works is dead, but he's not talking about salvation. James is talking about if we believe that Jesus died on the cross, then to be consistent, we should grow and mature and apply that which we have learned. That's what he means by works. He's not talking about saving faith when he's talking about faith without works is dead. He is talking about the faith of the Christian life coming after salvation. Now, as... Jesus is talking to the disciples. He said, we're told in verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. I want you to think just a little bit about this scene. Judas is coming. Just as a side note, Judas is identified as one of the twelve. Each of the gospel writers just refers to him as one of the twelve. They don't call him any horrible names. They don't uh, vent their anger at Judas for what he did. And even though at this point he is betraying the Lord, they still identify him as one of the twelve. I think the reason they do that is because it brings out the grace of God, that he is still treated as one of the group, he is still treated with kindness and generosity, and he is not treated with anger and animosity and vindictiveness. He comes with a great multitude. Now, we'll see what's involved in that in just a minute as we go to the John 18, uh, 2 passage. But look, they're coming after Jesus, who's got 11 
men with them, fishermen, a former tax collector, a few others. They're not outside of the two swords that Jesus told them to bring. They're really not armed. And yet they have this large multitude coming with swords and clubs. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of God. And that's what's being exhibited here. They've had a couple of times before when they've sought to grab Jesus and he just sort of disappeared into the, into the thin air. Uh, but they come with authority with chief priests and with the elders of the people. Mark tells us, again, notice he calls Judas one of the twelve and he comes with the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The point of this repetition is that they come with the local authorities, not just the Roman authorities, which is we'll see in Romans, I mean, when John 18, not just the Roman authorities, but also the temple police, the chief priests, the representatives of all the different groups in the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And then we're told that Judas will come out from the group by Luke, and he goes before them, draws near to Jesus to kiss him. Now, that's a pretty much of a summary statement. Other things are going on there. Now to John chapter 18. In John chapter 18, after Jesus has crossed the Kidron Valley, after he has prayed the high priestly prayer of John 17, John tells us, When Jesus had spoken these words, the high priestly prayer, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Then he just skips over the separate, Jesus taking Peter and James and John aside, Jesus' three prayers. He skips over all of that, and he just says, and Judas, who betrayed him, That's the other way we see Judas described very simply. Two or three times he's simply described as the one who betrayed Jesus. He's not, there's no no insults. He's not called any names. He's just simply identified as either one of the 12 or he's identified as the one who betrayed uh, Jesus. There is one time when our Lord referred to him in John 17, where the Lord referred to him as the son of perdition. Not Again, not an insult, but a description that he is bound for eternal judgment. The word perdition, the noun there is the same word that is translated perishing in uh, John 3.16. So that tells us of his eternal destiny. He was clearly not a believer. He was a traitor against God. And so Judas knew of this place, knew it was a quiet place, knew that this was where Jesus would be, and so he brings this crowd with him. Now one thing that we should, I want to point out as we start this, is that this is an event that is taking place at night. We know that they're coming with lanterns and torches, again, indicating nighttime. And this indicates the first of what Arnold Fruchtenbaum identifies as 22 legal regulations that are broken in the process of Jesus' arrest and trial. Religious authorities were prohibited by uh, their their laws, the religious laws and regulations of the Pharisees and Sadducees, from arresting anyone as a result of a bribe, and that was exactly what had happened. Was they had bribed Judas and he had betrayed Jesus, and for for thirty pieces of silver. So this violates their own law. When they come. Verse 3, they come with a detachment of troops. These are the Roman troops that are sent with them. The Greek word is spira, which refers to a a Roman cohort. A Roman cohort was the tenth part of a legion, which was approximately 600 men. 
are, if they were an auxiliary unit, it would be between 500 and maybe as high as 1,000. So let's just say they had five or 600 men with them. So they have uh, these these Roman soldiers along with the Temple Mount police, along with the chief priests and Pharisees who make up the Sanhedrin. Now, this is another problem that is a violation of their rule of law, that they uh, there were not to be any criminal proceedings after sunset, and the purpose was to avoid nighttime. We live in a, such an electric-lit world that we do not uh, really understand what nighttime was like in the ancient world where there's very few lights. There's just lamps and torches, and that's it. It's not illuminated like it is now. So many nefarious things took place under the cover of darkness. So to prevent these kinds of conspiracies, that they could not uh, have any uh, criminal proceedings uh, during the the night. And also, there may have been another legal problem here, is to get a cohort of, of Roman soldiers released to the Jews, they would have already had to have gone to Pilate. That's why when Jesus is taken to Pilate for his first trial, Pilate is already... Uh, awake. It's three or four in the morning. He's already up. He's already awake. He knows what's going on because they've already awakened him in order to get him to release a Roman cohort to go with them to arrest Jesus. So as they come, there's 500, 600 Roman soldiers. There may be as many as 100 to three or 400 others that make up this crowd. So obviously they have the numerical advantage anywhere from seven or 800 to 12. And yet they are uh, overly armed for the process. Though Jesus is faced with this huge mob, what we will see is he has courage He is committed to the Lord's plan for his life, and he's the one who takes the initiative and walks out toward them. As the writer of Hebrews points out, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He understood God's plan for his life, and he marched toward it. Now, the next thing we see is back in Matthew chapter 26, where we come to look at, are reminded of the backdrop, and that is the conspiracy of the Sanhedrin. Now, this is going to violate their law as well, because they are not to be involved in a conspiracy, they are not to be involved in the arrest, and yet that is what's going to uh, take place. They determined, two days before Passover, that they were going to murder Jesus, this is seen in 26, 3 through 5. Then the chief priests, notice the groups that are identified, all would be members of the Sanhedrin. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people, and they assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. So they have implicated uh, Caiaphas as well in this conspiracy. They plotted to take Jesus by trickery, not by law, by trickery. They're going to trump up charges against him and kill him. But they want to make sure it's not during the feast. That's verse 5, because they don't want to get the crowds upset. So they want to time it so that it's after the feast when people have gone home. But as usual, God has the ability to override human decisions and to accomplish his will. Judas is soon mentioned in Matthew 26 as the one God will use to move up their their plan. And Judas is mentioned in verse starting in verse 14 as the one who will betray him and will come to the chief priests. Judas is an interesting individual. When as we'll see when Jesus begins to identify him as the one who will betray him at the Passover meal, he, when he announces that he's going to identify him, all the other disciples are looking at each other like, who's it going to be? 
nobody suspected Judas. Nobody thought it would be him. As far as his external behavior was concerned, he looked like the other 11 disciples. He was not the one they would have suspected at all, which makes it rather, rather interesting. Now, Jesus clearly identifies him as an unbeliever. I mentioned this verse earlier where Jesus calls him the son of perdition. Further, as we look at what takes place in uh, in Matthew, after the Pharisees have determined that they're going to murder Jesus, the next thing we're told about Judas is that Judas, one again identified as one of the twelve, went to the chief priests. Now we'll learn that Luke tells us what motivates him, but he had already made that decision on his own. He goes to the chief priests and says, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. In the law, 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. So that he is going to betray uh, Jesus for the price of a slave. And we're told in verse 16, from that time he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now this is two days before Passover, so this is on Tuesday roughly. And he's looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. They don't want Jesus betrayed. They don't want it to take place until after the feast is over, which is another eight or nine days. But something happens, and that is that Judas becomes Satan-possessed. We're told in Luke 22.3, in conjunction with the same events, that Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to what Iscariot means. One view is is that it's a small village. We don't really know where it was. There's one that's listed uh, in Moab that has a similar name, Kiriot, and that he would be from uh, from that village, and that's what this name means. There's also the view that there were assassins who were known as Sicarii because they used a Sicarii-type dagger to commit assassinations, and maybe he was part of that group, but that's just really pulling ideas out of, out of thin air. No one really knows why he is surnamed Iscariot, but he's one of the twelve. But the important thing here is this verb. When it says Satan entered Judas, this is the same word that is typically used to describe demon possession in a number of other passages. The basic word is erkomai. That's the key word. It has a prefix, several prefixes that can be attached to it. Ace means to go into. So ace erkomai means to enter into something. X is the preposition to come out, and it means to come out of something. So when Jesus cast out demons, the the word that is used is either ekbalo, to cast out, and then when he has cast out a demon, we will be told that the demon came out of someone, ex erkomai. So every time you have ace erkomai and ex erkomai used in these passages of demon possession, it tells us that the demon goes into somebody or goes into the pigs or comes out of somebody or comes out of the pigs. It's a technical term that helps us understand what demon possession is. Now, there's a lot of debate over that because some people want to scare Christians into thinking that that you can be demon-possessed. And uh, I remember when I was in college and the Exorcist movie came out, the first one, and going with a friend of mine with whom I'm still close friends and we grew up together in church, and we had more fun watching everybody get scared and squirm because they had no knowledge of demonology or Satanology, and so they, they were scared that this could happen to them. And since we understood the Bible a little bit, uh, we knew that this was not something to be afraid of. But that's what this means, is it's demon or Satan possession. And in fact, what happens with Judas is that a couple of days before uh, the, betr- the betrayal, the Passover, uh, Satan enters into Judas. 
and that stimulates him as he goes to betray the Lord for the 30 pieces of silver. When you get to the Passover meal description in John 13:2, at the end of the supper, the, the Seder meal, the devil, we're told, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. That refers back to the Luke 22 passage. That's related to demon or, or satanic possession. Now, as Jesus is bathing washing the feet of the disciples. Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus makes a point that if you don't let me wash your feet, you won't have an inheritance with me in the kingdom. That's what the word part means. It's a term for a share in inheritance. Then Jesus says to Peter, he who is bathed, that's a full bath, the term luo means completely cleansed, needs only to wash his feet. Now, a complete bath indicates that total cleansing we have at salvation. And all that is, what this is depicting is the need for ongoing cleansing in terms of confession of sin, not a complete washing that happens at salvation, but just uh, washing your feet as it were. This is what the uh, priests in the Old Testament did. When they were anointed, they had a complete body wash. And then when they entered the temple they didn't ever have to have that complete ritual body wash again. They would just go in to the labor and they'd wash their hands and wash their feet. Two different words are used in the Greek for a full wash versus a small wash, and that's what we have here. And when Jesus says this, he says, he says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Now, what he is saying is, you, Peter, are clean, but not all of you disciples, because there's one that's not. The rest are clean. That is, the rest are saved, but there's one that's not. And here, John clarifies for us what this means in verse 11. He says, for he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are all not clean. So he makes it clear, the one who's not clean is Judas, who's going to betray him again indicating Judas was not a believer. Then in verse 18, Jesus says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And so in John 13:18, there is this reference to this prophecy that comes from Zechariah, that the, that a, he would be betrayed by a friend. And so Jesus alludes to that, and he is making it clear that this is the one who will betray him. But the response of the disciples was, who is it? They looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. And so it is clear that Judas... Is Satan possessed? Judas is not a believer. Judas is the son of perdition destined to spend eternity in the lake of fire. Now what happens is that as they are there at that Seder meal and Jesus is identifying Judas as the betrayer, Judas says, oh, my plot's been exposed. We're in trouble. I need to deliver him now, otherwise he'll have time to escape. So this is how the, the, the plot gets moved up. And so Judas then went, left the meal, and he goes to uh, Caiaphas, the chief priest, and he says, if we don't take him now, then he's going to get away. That moved up the timeline. And so they're going to have to take him now in the midst of the feast. And so they go to Pilate because they're afraid that they don't have enough men, so they're going to get a cohort of Roman troops to go capture this one man. And then they they have Judas with him. Judas knows that this is where Jesus goes with his disciples. It's a quiet place. It's away from the crowds in the city. So we can safely, quietly capture him at the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's hurry up 
and go now. So this is why there's this confusion. This is why they're violating all of these laws because it's a last-minute change of plans and uh, and everything seems to be falling apart. So in Luke 22:52, we're told Jesus said to the to the chief priests, the captains of the temple. That's the captains of the temple police and the uh, elders. John tells us Pharisees were also there, and this, again, is a violation of their law. Judges and Sanhedrin members were not allowed to participate in the arrest of a criminal. They were supposed to stay neutral, and participation in the arrest would indicate a lack of objectivity. And so we're told that... They come out and they are armed to the teeth and ready to um, ready to attack. Then we have the next episode, which is the kiss of betrayal. Now this is really interesting. Something we slip by just a little too quickly. It's described in Matthew twenty six verses forty eight to forty nine, and in Mark fourteen forty four. Here's what we read. Now, his betrayer, of course, that's Judas, had given them a sign. He said, okay, this is how you're going to know Jesus from the other 11, because the the Roman guards wouldn't have been able to tell one Jew from another one. They all looked the same to them. And so he says, whomever I kiss, that's the one, seize him. Immediately. He goes to Jesus and says, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Mark tells us in Mark 14, 44 and 45, Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one, sees him, and he adds, and lead him away safely. Wants to make sure that he doesn't get killed, nothing happens there. I think it's interesting that that's, he adds that. And then in verse 45, As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him, and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now let me point out a couple of things that are going on here. First of all, there's debate as to the order of events. There's two things that are going on. In the Synoptic Gospels, you have Judas come with the crowd, and then Judas goes to Jesus and kisses him. In the Gospels, they don't mention the kiss. I mean, in the, in the Gospel of John, they don't mention the kiss. They have Jesus going to the crowd and says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am, which is the name of God, and he says it probably in a divine voice that just knocks them down. So that's not mentioned in the synoptics. So which comes first? Now, a lot of, uh, there's a debate over this, which comes first, I think, that the emphasis in the synoptics is what's brought out by the New King James translation, as soon as he had come, immediately. Now, it doesn't say that in the Greek. It just says immediately. But the the, the uh, writers are bringing that out. What we see in these uh, descriptions is the appearance that as soon as they arrived, the first thing that happens is Judas will separate himself from the crowd, and he goes up to Jesus, and there's this private exchange between Judas and Jesus, and Judas greets him as a rabbi. This was a very common courtesy between disciples and their rabbi, and this is the nature of this kiss. It was designed to be something that expressed great honor and respect uh, for the rabbi. It's the same word, the intensified word that's used for the kiss is the same word used of the uh, woman who was identified in Luke 7.36 who anoints Jesus' feet and kisses them. It is that kind of intense, close relationship that is brought out here. But what Judas is doing here is turning it into something profane by using it as the way to betray uh, Jesus and to point him and to point him out. 
Now, the two words, there are two words used here for kiss. When he talks to the, uh, the, the chief priests and the Roman soldiers, he says, whomever I kiss, he's the one who sees him. He uses a normal word for kiss, phileo, which is from the noun meaning a close friend, a, an intimacy, something, like, something of that order. But when it says he greeted him and kissed him, the synoptics both use the word kataphileo, which is an intensified form, which indicates a very close, intimate, and some say it indicates that he kissed him more than once. He is indicating this respect, but he is turning it on its ear. And what we have here is a an interesting scene. On the one hand, we have Jesus, the eternal Son of God, undiminished deity, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the creator of the angels, the ultimate authority in the universe. And he is being confronted not just by Judas, but he is being identified here by Satan. Satan has entered into Judas. This is the, I've never heard anybody bring this out before. This is why I think this is an intimate moment here that it's not Judas is part of the crowd because Judas, indwelt by Satan, is confronting the God of the universe against whom he has rebelled. And he's using this kiss, twisting it on its ear, and for Satan it's gotcha. And this is how Jesus responds. I think this has to be read with great irony. He says, Judas, and I'm going to paraphrase this, do you really think you can betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He's pointing out, you just think you've got the upper hand, but you really don't. You see, we are told that Judas has been entered into by Satan. Now, I want you to hold, just, you can lose your place there. And I want to go back as I close to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, we have the description of the fall of Satan. He's identified in the King James with a, because of a Latin word that's used in the Vulgate referring to light as Lucifer. And so we refer to him as Lucifer. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's Halel ben Shahar, the bright one, the son of the morning. And this indictment is brought against him in verse 12. How, are, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said, and then we have the five I wills of Satan. This is the Satan who is in indwelling Judas, who has come up to kiss Jesus to identify him to the Roman troops. He is the one who said, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, that is, to take authority over all the angels. I will be like the Most High. That's the dynamic that's happening here. We have the confrontation between Satan and God in the person of Judas and Jesus and Jesus is going to, he thinks it's a gotcha moment. And Jesus says, you just think it is, but it's not. Because God's in control. Satan meant it for evil, but God means it for good. What happens immediately after this is Jesus goes to the crowd. And when they say, when he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, ego a me. That's one of seven times in the Gospel of John. Ego a me is the Greek for Yahweh. And he says, when he says, I am, your text says, I am he, and puts the he in uh, italics because it's not there. He is 
They fall down in subservience. They fall down on their faces. And I think he, when he says that, it is a blast from God that knocks these arrogant soldiers down on their faces in submission, in the appearance of submission to the God of the universe. So we'll come back and pick up with that next Sunday morning. Father, thank you for this look into what transpires in Jesus' betrayal, that he is not overcome by the fact that he is being betrayed. He is not... He does not feel defeated by this act of betrayal. But in fact, he shows that he is still absolutely in control of everything that's happening to him. Father, an application for us is that when we face difficulties, perhaps betrayal, disappointment, when we face loss, when we face any adversity, you are the same as Jesus here. You are in control it is your plan being worked out, and we need to have the same kind of confidence that Jesus demonstrates here because our confidence, our hope is in you and not in circumstances. Father, we pray that if there's anyone who is listening, anyone here that has never trusted Christ as Savior, that you would make the gospel very clear to them that we are all born sinners, spiritually dead, separated from you, destined for eternal condemnation. But you and your love provided a perfect Savior, a perfect salvation, so that we would not pay the penalty for sin because Jesus paid the penalty for sin. But if we fail to trust in him, as John 3.18 says, then we will be condemned because we have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And that's the only solution is to believe in him, and instantly we're given eternal life. Right now, right where you sit, if you believe Jesus died for your sins, then you are saved eternally. You don't need to pray a prayer. You don't need to do anything else because God in his omniscience knows that when you believe, and knows that exact moment when you believe Jesus died for you, and at that instant you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, you pray, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied, what we've learned today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.